he's impervious to our weapons. He has not yet felt the force of the elements. See, we look at these things like acceptance and tolerance, and we don't realize how degrading it is. You're already putting yourself in a pedestal above another human being, and we are supposed to be equal. Beware my power! Green Lantern's life! Hello, hi, and how are you? I am Dr. Carl Nas, and this is Referential. Referential is my podcast where we can have some serious conversations about frivolous things. If you're looking for a bit more of an explainer, please just scroll up to the first episode in this feed. It's short, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. In the meantime, let's just get into it. This is episode one. Black. And how? Let's go! Let's go. Okay, question. If you could wake up tomorrow and have any superpower, what superpower would you have? I've asked a lot of people that question because I am a big comic book nerd, but the most common answer that I've gotten is definitely not telepathy, which I do get, I really do. I have an image of Jean Grey crouching under the thoughts of everybody around her in my mind, but I don't know. A lot of my favorite characters are telepaths. Uh, okay, so let's just double back. If you don't know, telepathy is the power to read people's minds or change their thoughts or to communicate with just your mind. We are talking big name characters like Professor X or Martian Manhunter or Jean Grey. Okay, so I said all of that because a few years ago, I started writing an essay that I never got around to finishing. And the basic premise of it was to answer a question that gets kicked around a lot by fans. That question being, where are the black telepaths? Let's actually chew on that one a little bit. Where are the black telepaths? Looking at my notes, I started by thinking about telepathy itself, the power, in media from The Shining to The X-Men. Okay, so here's your argument. From the way that telepathy shows up in pop culture, you see telepathy almost giving, almost access to the depths of humanity. I mean, think about it. A telepath can walk through memories. They can see someone completely from their best to their worst. A character with the gift of telepathy is afforded knowledge which lends itself to access and that lends itself to power. A kind of insidious societal power. They will always know who they're in the room with and what they're thinking and what they've done and what they might do. I don't think you really have to stretch that hard to relate them to ideas about the voyeur. And of course, with all the associations that you can make about the voyeur and the male gaze, you could see why, in that context, someone who is writing a telepath or drawing a telepath would draw someone who looks like Professor Xavier. Because in our real world, people with power and access and control, well, they tend to look like Professor Xavier. Okay, so in that framework, I am encoding this idea of patriarchal whiteness in relation to telepathy. But there are characters who don't fit in neatly within that framework. Characters like Jean Grey and Emma Frost. Now, those characters both have a long and complicated and inconsistent history. But a lot has been written about the way in which their development has been impacted by things like the male gaze, male authorship, and the Madonna whore binary. So maybe they were afforded access to that power position of being a telepath because the story was about white masculinity being in crisis. You know, the way that white masculinity is always in crisis. Plus, their position as white women helped not displace the power dynamics too much because... 
um, the systematic patriarchy is convinced that it can always conquer women. But also because idealizing white women is one of the main tenets of that system, and in that there is a benefit, or a privilege at least. So it's been easier to imagine a white woman character being a telepath than it would have been to imagine a black character, let alone a black woman. I mean, imagine if Professor X was written to look like Jude Jordan for the very first issue. How much would have the trajectory of that story changed? But there is another angle we can attack this from. So let's go back to Emma and Jean for a second. Both of them have one thing in common, and that is that they are privileged white women. And if we expand beyond them, we can see that this is another trend amongst characters who are telepathic. They are characters of wealth. They are privileged. That actually maps on as well to the few characters of color who happen to be telepathic. So Monet, Karma, Astrid, I guess. So again, let's go back to the earlier point about telepathy as access. It is a signifier of wealth. It is a signifier of capitalism, aristocracy, telepathy as a signifier of class and caste. A means of categorization made to exclude black people until very recently. Kind of. Maybe. So again, we find ourselves with barely any black telepaths. And then there's the practical aspect which somehow annoys me the most. People like to imagine people who look like them. So the side characters don't get the big old flashy power. And if you are black, you're probably still on the side of the story. Or we could be more generous. A lot of these stories tend to be about telepathy bringing trauma. And we're all very, very tired of seeing black characters experience trauma. But that's if you want to be generous. I started thinking about that unfinished essay while editing the conversation that you're about to hear. My guest this episode is the always lovely Ashley Lane. He is the brain and the host behind the Immortal X of Words podcast. You'll hear a bit more about that in the episode. We talk about being super black, aka how empowered blackness is represented in fantasy and superhero and other general nerd media. We go in deep about a lot of the topics that I only just started touching on in that intro. Topics like authorship, how blackness is included or excluded from narratives about empowerment. And also importantly, we talk about what is good and what is bad representation. And just what quote-unquote good or bad representation means in the grand scheme of things. But before all that, like two good Brits, we have to start the conversation with a talk about the weather. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'll catch you back here in Citation Corner after you've listened in. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. See, I've been dying because of the weather. I can't handle it. I can't. Really? I don't like the heat. I hate the heat. What? I hate the heat. Which I know. I know. I grew up in a in a hot climate and all that. But that is the reason why I hate the heat. Because so I grew up and it would regularly hit forty degrees, and it was a small yeah. island, so it would be really humid. So it would be the kind mm. of thing where the air is heavy. It's kind of what this heat wave has reminded me of. It's been just so, it's been too much. It's been too much for me. I can't really, I can't do it. So I've been hiding out. The other day I finally like relented and I um, <laughs> spent 50 pounds on an air cooler and I don't regret a single decision. <laughs> I felt very posh carrying it on the street. I was really mortified. <laughs> oh, look at this. Look at this. Classism. <laughs> How's the classism? I just wanted an air cooler. <laughs>
they got you wrong. I know they did get me. At this point, I have an air fryer and I have an air. Oh no, no air fryers. Air fryers. Let me tell you something. <laughs> oh, tell me. <laughs> Give me an ode. <laughs> Somebody needs something sucked from the back. <laughs> I hate that. that. <laughs> Look, I didn't say anything. This is a classy place, you know. I, I, I didn't say any of the words, but I have given you the broad idea. You did warn me that you're going to get unfiltered on my pod, didn't you? This ain't is my this, house. This is how it begins. <laughs> is this how it begins, Phil? You're yeah. a respectable appear <laughs> before. You you were an idol to me. And like, look at you now. Just like a whole Fuck your couch. Person. Fuck your couch. <laughs> I have a lovely couch. Don't come from my couch. <laughs> it was a lie, Your Honor. <laughs> hey, this is from Habitat. <laughs> Why are you attacking my, my home? I invite you into it. I, I offer you I offer you tea. I've always been nice to you. I've always been decent to you. And it then you come at me with that couch. fast mouth. Thank it you. is a lovely couch. It is a lovely Thank couch. You. Don't you ever... Don't, don't, don't talk about my couch. Don't you talk about my couch. You can come from my family. You can come from my mother. You can come from my partner. But you do not come from my couch. That's not okay. I, I live here. <laughs> but I came home and you, because you were talking about stats, and I came back mm. in and I realized that I will probably never tell them that they were the reason that a 20 year friendship of mine ended. And now I'm obsessed with knowing like my shadow stats. Okay. Because they, they don't know. They're sitting at home. They just ended casually without any knowledge or involvement. They were the central theme of the end of one of my closest friendships. And like now I'm like, I wonder who I've broken up. <laughs> like, where? What are my shadow stats? Like, how many couples have I broken up? Was I walking down the street and someone's head turned and they went, how dare you? And then that was it. The marriage was off. <laughs> I think as a queer person living uh, in the United Kingdom, I think you need to be very careful about this train of thought that you were walking down. <laughs> I know I've broken up a marriage. I know that for sure. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to engage with that in my day-to-day -day life. You know? <laughs> yeah, I just choose to know nothing more about it. That's exactly. All. That is the agreement mm. we made that night, and I'm a lover who keeps to my vows. <laughs> Not you tapping me on the shoulder, be like, bitch, you know you're looking for extra accountability. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but speaking of problematic blacks, that isn't me. Have you heard the Richard I <laughs> have you heard the Richard Iwada news? I haven't. I've been staying away from him. Okay, tell me why. I feel like he was always annoying. We just decided we liked him. <laughs> I don't know. Like he was always just a bit odd. And people were like, oh wait, I find this charming. And I was like, Yeah, okay. And now... Well, he just came out as transphobic, so that's lovely. What did he say? Oh, um, he said something about Graham Linham. I don't, I don't know how to say his last name. Oh, Graham um, who, who's destroyed his entire family and reputation. And his wife divorced him, and now he just sits on Twitter being angry and ugly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, now I get to say the shit that I couldn't say before. That nigga got Let crispy afro. That nigga got crispy <laughs> afro. Yeah, I know you don't creep. You, I can, I can, I can feel mm. how dry your heel is from over here. Thank you. And, and you... I could tell he stink. He stink in that white way where they smell like milk. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. You hear me? You feel me? You... <laughs> they do sometimes. Not all of them. Some of them. 
he looked like if you nodded, he wouldn't know what to do. He wouldn't know <laughs> what that was. He feels like one of the people where if you go to speak to him in a room full of white people, you go, oh, I'm yeah. glad you're here. He goes, why? <laughs> if you nodded, he would give you a number for his great chiropractor. Not even, not even, because I probably wouldn't even get that close. Because you know what, there's something, no. about, there's something about black conservatives. You can always tell by the hair. Yeah, actually, that's a really great point. You can. You can always tell by the hair. I think the hair is like the litmus test. You know where you know where your skin is the last thing in your body to get like nutrients. Right. I think the hair the hair is the first thing to atrophy when your cultural connection is off. Uh, but no, the thing is about Richard Iwan is that I don't know what we expected from a guy who sold himself as British Carlton. Like, yeah, that's who he is. He told yeah, us what they yeah. And I do appreciate people who just say it with their chest. Like, okay, great. I know exactly how to feel about you. I wish more people would do that instead of hedging their bets, even though like trying to hide their views from the world and just letting it out in private. Ooh. Say it. Say it. Is that, I don't know. Is that just me? And also, no, people need to know also when they've got like either way face. Tell me more. Like maybe I think the last the last couple of years might have gassed him up because I think if people think that you're idiosyncratic and a little bit quirky, mm. um, either way face means that you could be a little bit cute or very ugly depending on what your attitude is. Okay. Like not me though. I, I'll be mean as hell and still fine. <laughs> but Richard. I was gonna say this this conversation is starting Richard. to feel a bit pointed, but go on. Uh <laughs> <laughs> not hit dogs hollering. <laughs> I didn't say a word. I did not say a word. And you dragged you dragged the muzzle right into your chest. You grabbed that shotgun and pointed it at yourself. And I was like, this this was not meant for you. Uh, I'm going to regret everything I say here today. I'm going to regret everything I say here today. No, you'll be all right. But yeah, no, now, because as soon as you said that, I went and I clicked on his name and I went and searched him. And he just looks horrible in every photo. And it's because I know now what stinking thoughts you have no i think you completely made the point there's a certain people who have gotten away with just being head asses for a really long time because of their quirk and i'm glad we're at least starting to reach a point where we have our certain things that are a bit of a line in the sand for some of us anyway which i guess yeah is and all things aside i mean i think we're uh, well i at least i'm being very sort of free and hyperbolic and silly mm -hmm. and i don't want the end of this conversation because you know sometimes when you talk you have to look at like the logical end of any premise mm -hmm. or idea you're setting up and that the logical end of this is i can judge weirdness by how you look or i can judge transphobia and you know that horrible sort of association between morality and beauty yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we're joking around that point, but I also want to make it really clear that we're doing it knowingly and ironically, and we are not mm -hmm. seriously associating <laughs> fucked up bigotry and prejudiced views with an ill-kempt afro. That's a great point, and yes, underline that. But I will say that something <laughs> in what I said... <laughs> but... Not genuinely. Great point. Oh, but he do be looking creepy, though. <laughs> She ugly though. No, a butterfly. <laughs> no, that's not what I was going to say. That is not what I was okay, going to say. What okay. I was going to say was that it's something that I said. I called him Black Carlton, and that for yeah. me was a way in which I was measuring his blackness, which I think is something yeah. in the stew, which is a conversation that's worth having. That his claim to. Well, not even his claims to blackness, but like, how do we feel about him as one, a prominent black face in British media being horrible? I'm not taking responsibility uh, for him. That's for one. 
it, can I can I be honest? I never once saw him as a prominent blackface. Okay. So for me to see somebody as a prominent black anything, they need to be publicly in their media or in their relations with press, okay. advocating and owning that blackness. Richard Ayoade has never done that. The blackest thing about Richard Ayoade is his surname. It's, yeah. it's, not, even yeah. that, it's not even that I've seen his, him actively try to distance it. It's just that I've never seen him in anything I've ever seen him in, in the years he's been famous. And I watched the IT crowd and I watched that documentary that he did and I watched this and stuff. I've never seen him even passingly reference his own mm. blackness. But then obviously, I'm, it's not like I'm a fucking stan, so... No, no, I think you're positioned in an interesting way as a casual, not even fan, as a casual person that's encountered his work. I agree with you, his work doesn't really often or at all engage with blackness, but... He is a person who presents as black and will be understood as black by the majority of the public. Can we say mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so he is part of a legacy of blackness, unfortunately. I, you're cringing. <laughs> How do we settle with that? Which I think is an interesting question given the topic that we're talking about. Because questions of trying to understand and relate to and interpret the blackness that we're presented with in fiction, which is what you do, specifically mm. on your podcast, X of Words. Yes. Could you actually just tell me a bit more about why you chose to do your podcast and what it is that you felt like there was a gap that you had to start addressing? Oh, sure. I, I love X-Men, but I love comics and I love media. I was always like a really voracious reader. And I not only got a sense for like really, really well-created characters and really rich worlds, but also regularly flexed that part of myself that had to relate to people who were fundamentally different to me. Mm -hmm. And X-Men was one of the few places in the, you know, mid-90s media landscape that mm -hmm. was talking explicitly about themes that I was starting to discover and also had a mix of people in them. Because go back to 2014 and you see a marked difference in the quality and the depth of representation of anybody that wasn't a white person. Go back to okay. 1995 <laughs> and it gets even worse. I, and I kind of dipped in and out of comic books and other types of media as well, purely because as I got older and I got more exacting about what I wanted to read and put in my brain, some of that stuff fell off. And okay. then Jonathan Hickman redid the whole mutant line and brought them back with far more agency and self-determination. And I was brought back in again. Okay. And I start suddenly, all these childhood stories and the childhood characters that I loved suddenly starting to get written about in a way that adult me could engage with in good faith. So yeah, then, you know, obviously Hickman comes around and suddenly the books are starting to make sense to me again. And I've got childhood love and adult standards both being met and combined at the same time, which is great. But then I started looking around for other people to be seeing the things that I was seeing in the books. And I wasn't. I was watching a lot of white dude bros screaming and lamenting about the fact that they weren't heroes anymore. Okay. I was like, hold on a minute. This is a mess. You guys are in a crisis. I'm on my way. This thing that means so much to people who aren't stood directly in front of the mic mm -hmm. might not be seen or valued or, or, or have its value appreciated by Marvel because the wrong people are stood at the mic. Having 7,000 X-Men media outlets, 99% of them run by white dudes, 
uh, might be a bit of a challenge when you start writing the first stories in 40 years that aren't specifically meant to appease the sensibilities of white dudes as it pertains to marginalization. So then I was like, fuck, all right, well, you know what? I tried to make a podcast on myself. It was boring as fuck. I, I don't want to edit anything longer than 10 minutes. <laughs> and um, randomly, I started call- talking about comics at the end of my first podcast, which was a flop called um, Pick a Lane, which was a f- um, great pun, bad podcast. <laughs> and I started randomly talking about comics and two people dropped into my inbox. I think it was like the second episode. The first episode, absolutely nobody listened to it. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. Second episode, I posted it and suddenly my inbox lit up with people in a way it had never done before. Because they were like, oh, you like comics? I love to hear you talk about comics. And then it was basically just a thing where I started following the fun. And I was like, hold on a minute, what am I actually reading now? What do I think about it? And uh, what do I actually enjoy? And then uh, that's what happened. And through that, I've managed to meet so many amazing, amazing black queer people, trans people, black women, neurodiverse people, people who have got autism, people who are non-binary. And I've heard so many amazing views on X-Men since then. But that was the genesis. Oh. That's a pun for those that don't know. So you read House of X, Powers of Ten, and you felt like there was a level to it that you wanted to engage with sincerely because you felt like there was, say, like bad faith engagements happening by other perspectives that aren't yours. And you felt the gap of your voice in the mix. Is that sort of what you're saying, right? Not even. It was more that I think any dominant group, any dominant group, Mm-hmm. has become dominant by creating the circumstances socially, systemically, by which you do not have to learn about anybody that isn't you. A sort of intentional, manufactured solipsism. Yeah. So you can, I was, I was speaking about this at work the other day, and I was like, you can, say if you're a white dude, you can get to the top of your field in almost every discipline there is, never knowing a damn thing about Asian people, never knowing Mm. a damn thing about disabled people or black people or women. You don't have to know anything about those people. If you're a man, think about how many men hit adulthood and are disputing the presence of a clitoris or a G-spot or don't know how menstruation works or think that women don't fart. And all of this speaks to a sort of, firstly, a personal ignorance, but also a systemic privilege of not having to learn about anybody who isn't you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I saw. I saw a bunch of people who had managed to build great platforms under themselves, but had never actually, even though they were reading something about, you know, a marginalized group, had never actually had to interrogate their relationship to that marginalized group or really learn anything about them. All they had to know was my mum and dad told me that Martin Luther King was all about peace and being nice to me. And that means that minorities should be nice to me. (laughs) <laughs> and right. that is and so when I when I saw that I, I felt like I wanted to contribute to, to conversation but it wasn't just like I felt like a, uh, there was a miss for my voice I thought there was a miss for loads of voices right. so that's why I came up with X of Words always having a different guest because I didn't want to add one facet to mm. a conversation that I think was lacking loads of facets I wanted to create a platform where loads of different opinions and perspectives could start to weigh in and chip in on this thing. Hmm. 
So what I find really interesting about what you've been saying there is that there's an element of agency in what you're saying, that you kind of wanted to claim agency in the way in which you're interacting with these mediums and these medias as something other than a consumer. So it's placing yourself in engagement with it as a critic, as a fan, and also connecting with a community, which a specifically Black community, which is... Empowerment, that's the, that's the title of the notes that you sent me. And I think a lot mm. of this was about empowerment. Hickman started writing stories that empowered marginalized mm. people, which led me to empower myself with a voice right. in order to defend that empowerment, if that makes sense. So right. in empowering the characters, he inspired me to empower myself to defend what was going on and talk about it with a level of nuance because I think a lot of people were seeing mutant empowerment as a threat in the same way that they hadn't ever interrogated that they would have seen marginalized empowerment as a threat. And that's the, mm. that's the, the seductive and dangerous thing about uh, tolerance and false equivalence that regressive backwards ideas of equality give you. Because if you're taught that you should pity a people because they are suffering, and if you're taught that you're a good person for doing it, that's the other thing. Tolerate, tolerating black people, yeah? Feeling bad for them because of all they go through makes you a good person. And once you tie pity to ego, people want to keep you in a pitiable state because A, they've never been taught not to fear you. So it's like, oh no, no, but they still have all the same lingering, well, what if they had too much power things? That all the, right. like, yeah. So people were really threatened by this mutant empowerment. Yeah. To me, you're just exposing the thoughts in your mind. So if you see a fictionalized, marginalized group get their own society and start thinking about their survival first, and you go, well, hold on a minute. This seems a bit suspicious. What are they going to do to the humans? Is that, Am I meant to think that's completely separate to the way that you imagine people? Yeah. No, I think there's like something very important about the perspective that you add as a person orientated as you are and also the guests that you bring on. I'm imagining like if without you, without the voices that I became accustomed to through listening to your podcast, through being connected to that community, how would I have received, say, the Araka storyline in the X-Men, for example? How would I have dealt into that more deeply when really what I gleaned from it and what I've learned from it came from that community? I was reading a book by Andre M. Carrington, who really spent a lot of time talking about Black fandom and the significance yeah. of Black fandom in sci-fi and fantasy and fiction. Mm -hmm. Earlier, we were talking about this idea of reading against the grain, which is reading not necessarily while ignoring authorial intent, but trying to take from it what you can and see what that symbolizes. And I find that that is something that you and your podcast engage with quite a bit. And that's kind of why I wanted to specifically have you on, because I'm really interested in your ideas of what is the state of Black representation in media today? Oh, <laughs> Now, what do you think of the state of Black representation? Because now Miles has been here for a couple of years. Yes. We have gone past the point where we are introducing Luke Cage on Netflix and talking about him being the bulletproof man and the significance of that. Think about where you are. It's hollow ground. This park, named for Jackie Robinson. It's here. It's all around you. If you respect yourself enough to take a look. At what? 
our legacy. We're a few yeah. years down that, and that's not to say that we progressed about that, but like what we are able to start to see what has came out of that. And are we better off? Is the black superhero yes. better now than he was 10 years ago or she was yes. 10 years ago? Yes. Yes. Why? Yes. 100%. I think black representation has gotten more diverse and more varied. Okay. And so there is less pressure on the representation we do have to do all things. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because uh, I was talking about anti-stereotype anti heroes. So I see Black Panther mm. as a character that was created to stand in direct opposition to all of the racist stereotypical right. hits at the time. So black people were dumb, he's super smart. Black people were poor, he's super rich. Black people come from destroyed countries with flies and mud huts. Black Panther comes from the most... He knows his ancestry. Yeah, he knows his ancestry and he, he's got, he comes from one of the most technologically forward mm. places on the, in the world and da-da-da-da-da. And, and th th this, is the, this is the challenging thing because there are characters that are Black Panther-esque, like Iron Man. Okay. Iron Man has a similar suite. What Iron Man doesn't do is stand in a black stage. He doesn't stand in a black context. Whereas Tony has almost hit for hit a lot of the same quality, skills and aptitudes and resources, he is not being judged as representative of blackness. So mm. I think that this reminds me when you were describing all the things that T'Challa is, I was reading something where I was talking about T'Challa is a vision of black futurism or the black excellence or you know black potential untouched by american slavery a hundred percent which i think is kind of what you were saying it's interesting like that is the thing that not just accessorizes him or anything like that but also that pushes him to the position that he is a position where we are all do we were a couple years ago all doing wakanda forever salute that we felt deeply connected to this history that we had these tendrils to identify with but it yeah. also i think comes with a huge responsibility because as you were talking about Iron Man being almost a character that's very similar to T'Challa, he doesn't have that burden of representing a whole community of people, which complicates this idea that you have of T'Challa as the anti-stereotype hero, because in many ways he is trading with those stereotypes, but maybe transforming them? Uh, exactly. I think he transforms them, but that comes with time. So I'll lean back on what you said about reading against the grain. And I think, yeah. yes, T'Challa was created as a vision of blackness that had not been touched by colonialism and basically white influence, overt white influence. Mm -hmm. he's also the antithesis of all the common stereotypes. Now, I know that is easy to do because if there's one thing white people love is demonizing blackness. So almost everything, if you dig deep enough, is the antithesis of yeah. some sort of black stereotype because yeah. we've been everything under the fucking sun. So it's not hard also to draw parallels and go, you know, you're the opposite of all the black stereotypes. There's literally 7,000 of them. <laughs> <laughs> that is true that is true so i do i do take into account like there's a pinch of salt there which is it's not hard to draw relief from literally something that is everywhere and ever present but also he was one of very few and yeah i think he was the first he was one of very very few positive mm. positive representations of blackness which means in my mind you have to carry more weight it's like table legs the more there are of you is the less weight each individual leg has to carry if there's only three legs then a lot is being concentrated through those people and that's why i say i think we're better off now because we have a, a suite of 
different characters. I can name more black characters now everywhere than I ever could before. Okay. Uh, so I was watching um, the Aquaman, the Aquaman. Yeah, the trailer. Today. Yeah, the trailer just dropped. Yeah. So I was watching that and I was like, we're back again. I was thinking, oh, look, we're back to niggas is bad <laughs> as a trope. <laughs> it is. And it used to, it realized, uh, no, because I, I watched the trailer and I was like, oh, I get it. So the only thing that should make you break out your Aryan genocidal brother is because there's a nigger here and he's objectively worse. Everybody can make up. As soon as, as soon as there's a black man to kill, everybody's back in the boat. We're, we're mobilizing. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't want to see another black man dead in the ocean. Enough is enough. I've had it. <laughs> that feels triggering and I <laughs> rebuke it. <laughs> but I, but that, yeah, but that was the thing is that I watched it and it didn't feel triggering and it didn't feel triggering because we have a breadth of black representation now. And so I have much more space for, and I can hold much more space for black antagonists because mm -hmm. you aren't you aren't everything i mean when i was young it was a phrase i used to have for media and i used to say that when it came to tv films and this and that we were niggers or we were nothing mm -hmm. if we couldn't be portrayed as the sum of the worst thoughts about us then we yeah. just weren't present if there wasn't a drug dealer to be if there wasn't a violence to be meted out if there wasn't somebody to be lashed and um, subjugated, then we just weren't present. Like mm. human affection, success, joy, thriving, complication, being troubled and still being loved and redeemable was not for us. Like today, I just got finished watching um, Edge of Tomorrow, mm. which is a film. I've never with, seen that. It's actually a really solid action sci-fi film. Kind okay. of good. I'll check it out. Kind of good. Okay. Tom, Tom Cruise, it's, it's like he's doing... Ah, uh, you lost me. You lost no, me no, 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 no. He's doing all of the the spy shit, but actually in an interesting purpose. Okay, so all right. When hey, yeah. It's when, a first. Tom is being, when Tom Cruise is being stiff and boring, there's other interesting things to pay attention to. <laughs> well, hello. Let's celebrate that. <laughs> there we go. Christmas for everybody. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Interrupted. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> but in that. We get a, uh, a fraudulent white military man who only gets into the military. He used to run an, a an ad agency and then joined mm -hmm. the military because he can basically help bullshit people. And they needed somebody who could bullshit people uh, into yeah. convincing them that the war effort was actually going well. And I watched it and I was like, this whole film is about how even the worst white men can be redeemed. And he mm. literally gets, he, the, pro the premise of the film is that he kills an alien and it gives him time looping ability. So every time he dies, he goes back to the start of the day and he keeps having to relive this day again and again and again while trying to stop an alien invasion. Yeah. But the whole film is just white redemption writ large. Right. We will give you endless days to learn how to not be such a coward or a jackass or learn how to respect women or learn how to do this and that, 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 that. And I was like, I never saw black characters given that grace. Hmm. Have we now? Have we seen a black character that has been able to earn redemption? I would say Oya. Okay. I would say Issa Rae. I would say everybody <laughs> in Insecure. 
You know, that's really interesting. I actually was thinking a lot about Insecure over the past couple of days when I was thinking about the idea, just in general, of empowered blackness, taking that away from superheroics and fantasy and fiction and the way yeah. that we deal with it in our everyday, day-to-day life. So thinking about it in relation to black excellence, respectability, the bootstrap exactly. sort of politics, obviously. But even all that aside, I started thinking about Issa Rae, awkward black girl, insecure, because of the way they disrupted that, because it was about showcasing an almost hyper, close, sensitive portrayal of like human existence, not just human existence, mm. black femme she human raised existence. She a spear yes. against her own husband for Wakanda. Where is her treacherous husband now? But in a place where she can visit, if she wished, mine! It's with the ancestors. I am queen of the most powerful nation in the world, and my entire family is gone. Have I not given everything? There is a lot of power in that. There's a lot of relatability in that. But I think it's interesting the way in which we have women characters do that. And we have male characters or men presenting characters be more so standing for this image of solidness, of impenetrability. Obviously, my mind's going to Luke Cage and Black Lightning. But even beyond that, if I think of every single character that Denzel Washington has been and continues to be. It's playing with this idea of being the unconquered hero. The idea of the black masculinity, obviously, that's seeping in there. There's like an interesting distinction in the way we have gendered our understanding of what is powerful from gendered black people in media. You said you said a couple of things that I really Go on. liked. There was this thing that I heard that I can't remember where I heard it, so sorry if I'm not uh, shouting out somebody who needs to be shouted out here, but they said that the true mark of equality is when we get black mediocrity. Right. And excellence. Hi. Excellence. Hi, <laughs> my name is Dr. Khaled Anas. Uh, <laughs> welcome I, to Reverend <laughs> I thought you were going to say your name was black mediocrity. I was about to fall off the fucking chair. <laughs> I would never cop to that. <laughs> I was about to, I was about to lay on. down dead, bitch. <laughs> um, Go on. But yeah, Black mediocrity. So I, but I think that's it. And, and mediocrity, I think, is maybe a little bit of a misnomer here. But I'm talking about like black redemption, black flaws, black nuance, black fear. Neutrality. Black, black weakness. Black, all of these things. And I think that... And when you were talking about black masculinity, I wrote, black masculinity is regular masculinity with a better enemy. <laughs> and... That's it. It's like, it is. It's exactly the same settings. It's like white men are running iOS 7 and black men are running iOS 8. Like there's uh, there's features. It's like, oh, all of that same shit, except we stand against racism. And a lot of it has the same fucked up tenets. So yes, you do get those same single stoic characters because masculinity is telling you to divorce yourself from your emotions. It's telling you to amputate the sensitive parts of yourself, the parts of yourself that readily connects with other people. It's heroing and championing a sort of um, cauterization of the self. And for black masculinity, uh, at least the black masculinity that I've always been exposed to and have consumed through the world and its media, the reason for that cauterization changes. Not necessarily because you're a man, but because you're a man who has to stand in this world against racism and you have to protect your black woman and your family and da 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 da. And I think there's, 
I think there's healthy things like in anything and like in masculinity writ large, there are healthy things to pull from it. Um, But it does tend to commodify other people and hierarch other people and grade and rank other people in the very traditional stereotypical masculinity. But also, I think like with black representation, the mediocrity thing, I'll spin back around to it again, because now I feel like we have that Mm -hmm. broadness that allows me to watch a black villain or a black antagonist and not think this is 77% of the black representation this year because he's not. And for the first time in my life, say if I don't want to see uh, a black man who is, you know, rallied against by an entire set of kingdoms, um, I can go and watch seven or eight other black shows. I can go and watch Harlem. I can rewatch Noah's Ark. Um, but yeah, just, just having that broadness, I think is great. But also the political... Political thought changes. Mm-hmm. Political thought changes and the places where black people are and where they conceive themselves to be in society changes. And that, I think, pushes off directly into what we want of, out of our superheroes and the, th- the people that are meant to represent archetypes or exemplars mm-hmm. of us. And as we change and our position changes, we want these images of us to change in reflection to that. Yeah. Which is why I think we see, we've seen way more anti-heroes come out now, specifically in comics. Because I think there was a time when everything around us was so bad in terms of representation in the news. In like, And I'm, I'm even drawing in the real media here that wrote reports on real life. It's relevant. It, exactly. And this this is why I, I, was, I was thinking this the other day, that for black, for black people, and for actually for anybody who is marginalised, the news is also a type of media. Mm-hmm. It's also something that needs extreme critique because it can be just as biased and unbalanced and fictional as mm-hmm. the things that we consume for their fiction. Just on that point, I always do trip up against the idea of deciding between bad and good, specifically mm-hmm. in conversations about representation. Though I do relate to that and I want to do it. But I remember being reminded by, I don't even know who it is, but a while back that always ask first what it's doing. Why is this happening? What is it doing and why does it want to do that? And those are the questions that yeah. I approach representations of blackness in media and these science fiction and fantasy media. You, you can like glean a lot of really fruitful things just from that process. I, to- I totally hear you. Um, and that's really interesting because as you said that to me, I was like, it's, n- it's inherently sort of reductive, I think, like mm-hmm. good representation versus bad representation. And really I tried to talk about things like, like you said, in what they do. Yeah. What's the what's the impact of this? Instead of saying it's good or bad, just say, is this a reflection of stereotypes? Is it not? Is it this? Is it that? Because also, I think that... I, was, I just think we have to take account of the fact that a lot of our legacy characters, like Storm, like Black Panther, started out quite bad stereotypes or very stereotypical. We saw Storm mm. for the first time naked uh, in Africa. In Africa, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and Black Panther is the king of Africa, pretty well, much. Of course, and I mean, they, and that's that's why I said it's tricky to mm. see them as the reflection of stereotypes because there are so many fucking stereotypes. There's very few things that Black people have not been maligned for. So there's very few contexts that you can meet a character in a way that wouldn't align with some sort of stereotypes, but do they fall into the big tropes of black people are closer to the natural world? Yes, Uh, Mm. because if anything, black people were always seen as animalistic and brutish. 
So yeah. you see a lot of black characters with powers that are connected to nature. Black Panther's entire motif is an animal, which yeah. is the same as Vixen. Mm. Uh, and then you've got the physical prowess stereotype. This is why sometimes I say that these things are evidence of stereotype, because in my mind, these are these are the things that white people thought were complementary to say about black people. Oh, you're being right. strong. You don't realize that that is a racist screed that is drawn from slavery when our bodies were commodities to you. And white people have never had trouble seeing the value in black physicality, which is mm. why you, they will always support a singer or a runner or a jumper because the black value is in the physical. And it was like that when we were tilling and farming and picking. And now mm -hmm. they just cheer for us to run and jump and throw and score. We're still serving white interests with our bodies in a lot of ways. But, you know, obviously that changes and flexes. What you're touching on there, just to slightly take a different angle on that, then there's a way we can view these black characters in media as a way of categorizing blackness. Especially mm -hmm. if you think about the position of the authors at the time. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about Aurora. Mm -hmm. And I think I mentioned something about the way in which if you take Aurora from the original series played by Nichelle Nichols as a central text, then Aurora is presented as this idea of black potential. written by white authors, presented to probably primarily white audience in the showrunner's mind. Mm -hmm. That was how Uhura was constructed, an idea of like black potential. Still, that was given the confines of the time and the people involved, that potential was behind a desk just talking to people rather than being part of the actual action. When we saw Star Trek go into its actual mission, Uhura was in space. She was in a more servile coded role, which is interesting, especially when you're attempting a futuristic utopian vision what that ends up exposing is the limitations between our idealism especially if you're thinking like within liberalism and the confrontations mm -hmm. of that with the actual reality of the systems that we are currently in that are purporting to get us there to get us to that utopia and in that confrontation there's a dissonance that's really useful when you want to speak and critique politically about our structures and our systems. I totally agree. But I think in there you said our imagination. And I'd just like mm -hmm. to tap on that word. Because okay. is it ours? And that was the that was the center of the episode that you were talking about from X of Words when we started mm -hmm. it. Uh, I did an episode about um, can a black character really be black if they haven't ever had a black writer? And here, imagination is, I think, the exact right word. Because mm -hmm. if a man in the 70s is imagining the potential of women in a far-flung future, can that really be divorced from the misogynistic framing that you've received about women? Mm. Is it the same? Is it a man's imagination of a woman in mm -hmm. a different context. And that's why when you say like the imagination, I'm like, yes, true, but whose imagination is it? 
That's a really great point. I think there is a couple of things that maybe I'm talking about differently here, but I'm not actually mm -hmm. expressing because there's this idea of like, or at least my idea of a public imagination, almost a shared consciousness in the culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, the things that we all have access to that people are talking about all the time. But there's also specific black culture, black cultural imagination, yeah. where based on your orientation and subjectivity as a person, you are more likely to like understand and interpret things in a specific way. But speaking of imagination, I do think that there is an active role of the reader in interpreting text. I yeah, think that yeah, that kind 100%. of changes it in a way. So I think that a Black reader reading a Black character written by a white author, I think there is an active act in how they interpret them. That, by extension, allows them to claim them and identify with them, despite that hitch. I totally see you. And also, like, all of this is... Mm. I think of it like a shattered mirror. It's the same image, but everybody's seeing a different facet of it from a different perspective. It looks different mm -hmm. or distorted or bigger and smaller, depending on how you're reading it. I hear you talk about a shared consciousness, and I think there is, but only in the loosest sense of the word, in that I sure. think the shared consciousness is a tree that has a shared stem, <laughs> but there are a thousand interpretations that yeah, run yeah. from that shared stem. And when I, I read a comment today on on Reddit about how someone was scared that they'd been reading Judge Dredd all wrong because they thought Judge Dredd oh my God, was I saw that. the hero. <laughs> hero. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, the, you know, the follow-up comment where someone was like, yeah, I always thought that the Empire, I, you know, I was watching Star Wars and I was an Empire guy through and through. And mm -hmm. you see that <laughs> and you realize that for for example and i know you know we speak quite readily about whiteness but i'm going to do it again um for example uh, straight white men who are taught to venerate legal law systems because those systems have always been used to protect enshrine and empower them mm -hmm. as completely separate to queer people or black people who have lived experience historical experience of how the law is used to disenfranchise them and subjugate them will have completely different interpretations of a central figure like the empire. One will see right. them as a necessary, and it, I, I think it's always really in, in, interesting to watch how people who are from these empowered groups speak about power figures and what they represent to them. Because mm -hmm. he said that he'd always believed and always been taught that law and establishment was an island in a sea of chaos on which society could be built. And I thought that was really, really powerfully evocative language. It's so idealistic as well. It is, but if if the dog has never bitten you, of course it's a great guard dog. Hmm. It's and a great it's, idea. It's, it's a great idea if it worked. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, to me, it's, it's the duality of, 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 of man, but in structures, it's like a baseball bat. If mm. you've only ever used it for play, then it's a signal of play. If it's only ever been used to hit you over the head, then it's a sign of violence. And two, two people are looking at exactly the same object with wildly different lenses. And I think even within blackness, you get that. Because when I was talking to Michael in the episode, Michael basically told me that being a black fan meant that in order to enjoy the media that he was reading, he had to accept a certain level of distaste disregard he had to learn to look the way he had to learn to look the other way in a lot of different things you know right so alienation and was a key feature of like how he was relating to it not even alienation just like acceptance of 
gross misrepresentation or harm right. for him. And we'd, we'd gone two different ways. Like we were both met with black characters that were super superficial or super stereotypical and basically mm. integrated or embodied these stereotypes we were trying to get away from in real life. And some of us, like me, went, this is bullshit and put the books down. And other people went, let me just draw out the positives of this, you know? Right. And so right. that's why I think that also we've come a great way in terms of representation because it's not so either or anymore. Like I can pick up and put down loads of different things. I was watching Queen Sugar and Queen Sugar is one of the best shows I've ever fucking seen. If you haven't mm, watched Queen, beautiful Queen Sugar, show. go Beautiful watch. show. Go. And that is like black humanity in all mm. of its rawest senses. Like then people want to be dead because I was, I was going through it, bitch, every single episode. <laughs> but but show, <laughs> shows like that, and then you juxtapose it. And she was like, dating a cop, and my heart broke. Oh! <laughs> oh! I was like, no, I was ready to cast you a storm queen. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, it wasn't even that. That wasn't even my thing. Everything to do with blue. Oh, my <laughs> God. If blue came on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> if blue came on the screen, I was ready to go. I was on the edge. Yeah, the tears were welling up. The nose was dripping. If he went, you were giving it all by all the Davos. Like, Charlie, like, just, do you know when she takes the, she's looking in the mirror, she takes the wig off. Not like this. Why is your penis on a dead girl's phone? And also the thing that I love about it is that I don't think black media is, is trying to be or needs to be as general or widely relatable as it did before. Because, all right, so say if we go back 10 years and we look at the shows that we had on, we've got the, what's it, what was it called? Uh, the Cosbys. Yeah, we the Cosby Cosbys, show. Right? We've got the, ah, uh, fuck, Will Smith, Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We've got Living Single. We've mm -hmm. got Girlfriends. Now, Girlfriends. I would split. Sorry, I just love that. <laughs> Not you trying to soft launch a music career. <laughs> I ain't got a soft launch, bitch. <laughs> I could book any stage in any room. <laughs> Good luck with that stage you speak of. <laughs> <laughs> Not me being the Sierra of the situation. <laughs> Not my goodies. <laughs> Oh no! Well, at least I get a wrestle at the end of it. That's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. So okay, so I could I could categorize those two shows in different ways. Like I feel like half of it is about being deeply, deeply relatable. Girlfriends, mm -hmm. living single. They had one of every type of black person. Okay, you know they were trying to. They were trying to relate. You, you got the classy one. You got the hippie one. You got the job obsessed one. You got the man mm -hmm. obsessed one. You got the this. You got the one with it. You got the single mother. You got. It was yeah. trying to be relatable to every. It was trying to gather as many black Their people tropes, as it yeah. can. Yeah, why not? I think it was because we had such such scant black media that they wanted it to speak to loads of black people. And we had limited space in media as well. And that exactly. like we didn't get the spot. We had one spot. Yeah. So if you want a show to work. You can't be hyper specific about the type of black people that it were, that it speaks to, mm -hmm. because as soon as they see black four black women on the on the fucking poster, ninety eight percent of white people ain't watching it. And there are a lot of really interesting studies about how white people do not watch films, TV shows that have entirely or even majority black casts because they mm -hmm. do not think quote unquote it is for them. Yeah. Um, so if you know that chances are you're aiming for a black show and you've got one fucking shot of this and it needs to be a rating success, you need to try to speak to as much of the black population as you can to get those ratings up. Whereas now 
now, I think with the rise of social media, which democratized access, it democratized support uh, in a way that took it out of sort of traditional metrics building. So I, I did a lot of social media strategy and social media management back in the day. Mm-hmm. And there's also a massive part about how uh, racism and inequality changed access to media, to the mediums or the technology that we use to, to consume media. So TV shows, if you've got, well, loose example, I'm making all of this fucking up, but um, I'm telling you the trace of things that I saw with bullshit sort of facts and figures. But uh, say 20 years ago, a TV was way more expensive than it was because it was a huge luxury item. And we knew that a lot of black people were working class and couldn't afford those luxury items. So maybe didn't have a color TV or didn't have the access to do this or were catching things on other people's TVs or watching this or didn't know about them at all. And if we're judging the success of what works and what doesn't based on an already skewed population of TV watchers, when not everybody has equal access to a TV, you've already got a skewed population. So the white show that speaks to rich white people is gonna be way more of a ratings hit because more rich white people have TVs. Mm-hmm. And so the the rise of the internet democratized a lot of that in a really powerful way. But and like that's not all good in that if everybody gets a voice, it means that the voices that you don't want to hear are also as loud as the voices that you do. One hundred percent. Access meant access for everybody. So even mm-hmm. though people had access to a platform, the quality of what you would hear on any given platform sometimes dropped down. Now I say yeah. quality in terms of like, and this is what this is what we're facing now, like this big boom in misinformation because. Um, there are no checks at least mm-hmm. like 50 50 60 years ago if you had a news show on there was at least the expectation of some level of journalistic integrity in the facts and figures i mean there was a lot of shit that was skewed and bullshit because you know fuck it you, mm-hmm. they weren't going to do a fucking civil rights march justice uh, and so that's why like ah that, that's what i fucking forgot the points of good and bad and i, I think one of the unique things that i've always held as a black fan mm-hmm. and as a black person generally in life is this really interesting relationship to the concepts of good and bad right as sitting in a group and you'll know this but sitting in a group that is often and has historically always been labeled as bad unduly meant that i grew up i didn't have the privilege of learning this really simple dichotomy because mm. from my early days my parents were saying to me i know that they've labeled everything evil dark corrupting as black right and they've also labeled you as black but mm. you are good yeah there's a dissonance there yeah not even not even a dissonance, but just understanding that being told something is bad does, is not the end of it. These, these concepts need interrogation. From my earliest concept of self, it was an interrogation of the labeling of bad. I've never heard anyone else express that. Just trying to come to terms with the way in which the word black is understood specifically in relation to white. I was just reading Stockley Carmichael's Black Power speech just because it was quoted in something and Stockley Carmichael was an organizer and coined pretty much the term black power and that reverberated towards the 60s and 70s. Questions about power. This country knows what power is, knows it very well and knows what black power is because it's deprived black people of it for 400 years. So it knows what black power is. But the question of why do black people, why do white people in this country associate black power with violence? And the question is because of their own inability to deal with blackness. If we had said Negro power, nobody would get scared. (laughs) Everybody would support it. Uh, If we said power for colored people, everybody would be for that. But it is the word black. It is the word black that bothers people in this country, and that's their problem, not mine. 
their problem. And I was thinking about the idea of black power within that confines. And part of his speech, he was talking quite a bit about the way in which we have been taught to believe that everything that is termed or associated with black is bad, but black Mm -hmm. is beautiful, black is good, black is power. Anything all black is bad. Minor premise or particular premise. I am all black. Therefore... I'm never going to be putting that trick back. I am all black and I'm all good. So interesting reading that speech. Everything he was saying felt so familiar about the co-option of words away from black people, the position of the white liberal. It was edifying. It was just really illuminating. We have not moved a step forward. Instead, we got access to a bunch of different people's voices that just showed us how far back we all still are and how far we still have to pull. Well, actually, I don't even know. I kind of, I'm abdicating that responsibility. I don't want to pull anyone into a realm of awareness. I'm done with that. I feel mm. like you have the world at your hand. You can find it out. But. And I think that takes us, well, it takes me back, interestingly, mm. to like the superhero of it all. Because yeah. your thing was about black empowerment. And as I read through the notes that you sent me, that were very extensive. <laughs> Don't drag me. Don't drag <laughs> me. Don't come for me. She, Mama gave you she, references. She gave you quotes. She is a PhD <laughs> girl through and through. Don't forget it. It's on the wall. Look it up. <laughs> Look up, bitch. She's here. Yes. She's a doctor. Well, um, what I was, what I was going to say, I think there's like an idea brewing in my mind. So yeah, as I grew up from my earliest days, there was always this duality of understanding mm-hmm. that what was called bad was not always bad. And there was definitely a very fine line. You could be called bad for things that were not bad. So mm-hmm. as I grew up, and started to chafe against some of the more heteronormative things that were happening within the black community that I was part of. And Mm. I realized that I was, but for not liking women in the way that I should. Mm. And so my whole life as a black, queer, neurodivergent person, I say neurodivergent, I've got ADHD. I've lived a life where parts of me, inherent parts of me, have always been labeled bad. My, My blackness made me more likely to be bad. My queerness made me a pervert or a sexual deviant or a sissy Mm. or a faggot or weak or a coward or this or that. My ADHD made me unreliable and inconsistent and impulsive and sensitive and da-da-da-da-da. So my whole life has been a reconciliation of that line. So your questions made me think, what is the function of superheroes? What is the function of these people that we create and imagine? And sometimes they are meant to show the best parts of us. Sometimes they're meant to show the worst parts of us. They, they show how far we can fall. They show cautionary tales of what we're capable of. And they show what we imagine ourselves to be capable of. So that, I think, nicely ties us back to the imagination thing. Because when a lot of black heroes are being created by white people, they're not actually what black people think they're capable of. They're what white people think black people are capable of which can be tailored and colored and and tinted with a lot of other things. But then I was like, okay, taking it outside of that realm, and what do black superheroes mean to me? I mean, I can't speak for blackness as a whole, but to me, I wanted them to empower me in a way that they couldn't. As a seven-year-old, I probably had more nuance about good and bad being very circumstantial, situational terms 
than a, a nine-year-old, for example, who has none of those barriers and the jacket fits them great. So they get told there's good and bad and they just happen conveniently to be good. And so yeah. that is a dichotomy that never chafes them. They never have yeah. to see any nuance in it because it never it isn't expressed with nuance and it doesn't present in their life with nuance. There is yeah. good and they are bad and they are good and they are separated from all the things that are bad while all the media and the news and the televisions and, and I think there's also explicit messaging but then implicit messaging. Like for example, you don't have to tell me that apples are a shitty fruit. You just never have to sell apples anymore. <laughs> Just don't sell apples. And so when people are like, oh, why is representation important? I go, because there's power in a mission. There's tacit yeah. messages in a mission. And if white people are walking through a world where they are the only faces anywhere and they never see anyone else, it's very easy to just environmentally soak up this idea that they're not important. Because if they were, they'd be here. And you align that with this idea that a lot of people think the world is a clean meritocracy. It's not. You, you've headlocked the world so that you don't have to experience any sort of challenge or discrimination. The rest of us mm. is very not, is very much not. But if you overlay this idea, this sort of faux idea of meritocracy with the clear and present lack of anybody but you, it's easy to come to, well, we wouldn't be here unless we were the best. We wouldn't be everywhere unless we were the most interesting or the most, most relatable or the most gregarious or the most this. And that's, mm. that's something that I had to unlearn in my life. So then when I sat down and I opened up these comic books and I see black superheroes, I wanted them to be a representation of what I thought I was capable of. And I wanted to see myself in all my messiness brought to the page. I wanted to see liberation themes. I wanted to see black people do things that I wasn't empowered to, to do in my own life. I wanted to see black queer people stand up for their identities and push back against heteronormativity within blackness. I wanted to see black heroes that pushed against the confines and the chafes of white ideas and limitations and violence and, uh, and stereotypes. And what I got was, I got very much respectability on the page. Mm -hmm. This is what white people think makes us good. Right. And I, so that's what pulled me away from the medium because I started reading Icon at first. Mm. But in, in X-Men, and this is why I think I was drawn to X-Men so much, because they were, in many cases, anti-respectability. Their mm -hmm. bodies were different. Right. There was no way they could hide or pretend. And that's why I've, I've never been, to this day, I have never been an original five reader. Right. No, don't. It's bad. <laughs> I just, I just don't care. It, it, you can see, like, to me, there's a marked political shift. It's not great, but it's significant. Where you suddenly have a team of a German Catholic, uh, a Russian farm boy, an African international. Goddess. Exactly. Yeah. It leans so hard into the idea that mutantum was about variation and difference instead mm -hmm. of these five white kids who just happen to be special. And because you, you can sum up 90% of media with the sentence in which a white person discovers they are special. And so right. the, the O5 really, but the new team did. And that's where I really started to get into it. Uh, yeah, so so I, I wanted my black heroes to be nuanced. And now I feel like I can get that. And it takes us back to the, the black mediocrity point, really. And I, like I said, I think mediocrity here is a misnomer because what I want to see is black nuance. I want to see black complexity. And that's, that's why it allowed me, now that I'm sitting in this new cultural landscape where I can act, Access black complexity. When I see characters like Black Manta in Aquaman, it's mm. fine because they represent yeah. just one facet of a diamond that has loads of facets now. They're not the only page in the book. Right. So to me, Black Manta sits, you know, as one of 
hundreds of rolling pages about blackness that I can access. And that is a valuable part of the black complexity. You need black mm. antagonists. You need you need mad black people. You need black people who hate ev everyone. You need black people who are getting everything wrong as part of that story of black complexity. And that's that's where I think we've made the most strides because when I was young and growing up, we didn't have black complexity and now we do. And for me, it makes me much more receptive of and graceful towards stories right. that maybe are stereotypical or show black people in a particularly harsh light or da da da. I'm with you on all of that. What that made me think of is that there are now a lot more black authors. There's more black authorship writing yes. black characters, which is great. But I am wondering is that they are writing these characters under these corporate giants for the most part, right? And so that necessitates usually is that they're mediating with these corporations in a way. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in your perspective about how do you think that Black authors are orienting their participation amongst these cultural giants towards unexpected aims? And me asking this question, I'm thinking, I was just yeah. watching this new show that premiered, which is more of a horror, The Other Black Girl. Have you heard of it? Uh, um, yeah. I wanted to watch that. I was going to it watch was The Changeling tonight. I was going to start watching The Changeling Oh, yeah. Tonight. That's the other one also I was thinking of. But yeah, no, I was watching that one. And that is a story about two black women working at a um, publishing agency and mm. uh, playing the game to try and get ahead of each other or to try and mediate around each other. And so that is mm. the perspective that is inserted in by... Um, having black authorship it's adding a dimension to a story that we're often quite aware of and we're quite familiar with but i'm wondering like well what are the trends that you're seeing developing in the way in which black authors are negotiating with these institutions that they're working for and getting paid by for the work that they're doing okay so my sense of it is that it is difficult but mm -hmm. firstly it's always been difficult and secondly I think we're in an interesting time now because I think we're in the tail end of what I would call the George Floyd corporate era, where anti-blackness and the way that corporations interact with blackness in terms mm. of individual blackness, in terms of black culture, in terms of commodifying blackness, they're very aware of it in a way that corporations have never been aware of it historically. So do I think it's very difficult? Yes. Do I think that for the for the time being, at least, because we know that memories are very, very short and people mm. very quickly get exhausted of having to see the humanity and consider the personhood of people that they've never had to do that for yeah. before. Um, it is tiring. It is. Apparently. Especially, yeah, well, I mean, if you lived in a world where you never, ever had to learn about anybody else and then suddenly you did, yeah. uh, you know that you know that really cool quote where it says, like, if you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. If you're accustomed to solipsism, awareness feels like effort. Empathy is impossible for a solipsist. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you don't exist. If somebody's grown up, only ever seeing people like them. Now, let me oh, just sorry. hold you to a point you were saying just for a second. You were talking okay. about we're in a post-George Floyd era in representation, which I think is really... It's really in, um, insightful because we did have that sudden flurry of pressure and people for once, for the first time in our history, it felt like, oh, there is something that we have to talk about. And yeah. the majority of people agreed, or at least a large proportion of people. And the conversation was shifting that way. We have passed that now. That has had some ramifications, not ramifications, but influences on the culture and on the media that we've had in the culture. We've had more Black stories than ever being funded, yeah. produced. Yep. We've had more Black talent being spotlighted on magazines, on television yeah. shows, all that stuff. And that's been great. Yeah. But now, like you're saying, we're reaching that plateau 
so moment as someone who in your day job you work with edi don't you so like what would be mm. your prediction where are we going next if you had to predict um, regressive are we going back yes okay yes we are so i would say for a while and this was sad because it's you know you were talking about us not coming anywhere you know we're doing yeah. all these things just to show how how little we've moved mm. george floyd was a lynching that's the only reason people cared. They saw, they watched yeah. a black man get killed live in front of them. And that used to be done for sport. That used to be done for entertainment. And it's mm. sad that there had to be a lynching for people, for there to usher in a, let's give, let's, let's give a shit about black people's experience, zeitgeist. And that's what it is. It's a yeah. zeitgeist. It yeah. was, it's not a fundamental movement. Because like I said, solipsism is hard to unravel. And I also don't think that this is something that just one marginalized group will be able to do alone. I don't think that disabled people will be able to fundamentally change society, its, its ways or its movements in the same way. I think that, that there's a particular, there was a really interesting power in the overlap of COVID and the Black Lives Matter. Mm. There, and I think the reason that both of those were managed to get so much momentum was because they were both challenging the, the status, status quo, quo in different ways at the same time. Mm. And that was very powerful. But what I think I think regression is gonna happen in the same way that regression always happened. But yeah, I, I, and I do think you're right. Like we got so many things greenlit. Like I don't know whether Miles Morales would have had his own film like that, had people not been able to lean on the cultural zeitgeist of this is the time for black stories. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I, I'm so aware. And it's, it's really like a poison chalice type situation because as much as I know that I love the black complexity that I get now, I do know it's paid for in blood. Mm. And I wish we weren't, I wish we weren't a society that had to watch somebody die to briefly engage with their humanity. Yeah. Because we've been talking about this forever. It's not like this is a new conversation. It's just the people who'd learned to tune us out needed to watch somebody die on camera to give a shit for a bit. And that is very, yeah. very depressing. And I think that level of entrenched shit, it's a boulder that we managed to shift a little bit for a while, but it's going to roll back. There's a dent in yeah. the floor where it was. <laughs> I spoke earlier briefly about like nuance, about this idea of good and bad. And I love that we are where we are now. If anything is going to lead to a sustenance or, or a sort of sustained period of this, it is the richness of the stories that we've managed to give. As much as I think there will be a, a swing back, I also think that, okay, so you're standing in front of the door, you hit it open, the door swings mm -hmm. quite wide, but then it has yeah. to come back and fall on your hand. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen. We've pushed the door open, it's swung open for a whip, and then it's coming back, but eventually it will meet our hand. And when the door wasn't there, we managed to get our hand forward. So yeah. when it comes back, it, uh, you know, when it comes back to rest, it will probably rest a little bit further than it was. But I, I am glad we have the complexity that that door push created. Because now I think you can actually get the realistic and what I think is the best position for blackness in terms of superheroes, but also in wider media. Yeah. I think as, as a people that, are, that have a legacy of being painted as bad in undue or unfair ways, mm -hmm. you could never capture proper black complexity through that rigid dichotomy of good and bad. Because black people are both of those things at the same time sometimes. Sometimes they're none of those things, or sometimes they're one yeah. when they're really trying to be the other. So I don't think you can yeah. actually get proper good stories with that dichotomy so i like i love that you called that out and you were like you think that's a reductive view 
And I, th I think it's a completely reductive lens. And I think in some people, it becomes more of a reductive lens. I think yeah. with everybody, it's reductive because no one is just good or just bad. But especially for a people that have always been politicized on that line, mm. the idea of goodness and badness becomes really interesting. It's not only it's not until you start to mix it up and blur it that you can really start to tell the real, authentic black stories. Yeah. I kind of almost want to tie it up there because I think that was really lovely. I do want to get your response to one more thing though, and then I'll let you go. So Malcolm Spellman, I think that is the first quote I put in. Blackness is a concentrated version of the great human struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So I really would like to get your reaction to that statement. So that is the showrunner for Falcon and the Winter Soldier TV show. Okay, so let me just say how I felt. I kind of rebuffed that almost instantly because I feel like there's something essentializing about the framing of it. Yeah, 100%. And I also think that it ascribes pain to blackness in a way that I don't like. Yeah, I kind of just wanted to get your response to it. I mean, especially now as a person who I think you watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which if you did, God help you. Uh <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, is a very broad quote. That's like, blackness is a concentrated version of the great human struggle. And then you gave us yeah. a deflated quarter pounder with cheese. <laughs> so do you even understand what you're talking about here? God, that show. I cannot believe that somehow Secret Invasion... It was the Secret Invasion worse? I don't know if it's worse or better. It was more so boring. Is it, is it... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, they made another black woman green. <laughs> oh yeah, because you know what? It, if there's one area where people have never struggled to find black actors, it's when you need a monster or an alien or someone to be so different and weird. Like, do you know how pissed off I was when in Avatar... All of the all of the Navi were black people. I was like, so hold on, people are going through three hours of hair and makeup, but you still needed niggas because they're aliens. It was like they're meant to be weird. They're meant to be weird savages who live in the trees. Let's hire a <laughs> Did you see oh, the no. in the sequel? They apparently like hired white people and just gave them dreadlocks and blue skin, <laughs> but they're still black coated. Them. I was like, oh Better. my goodness. But I was James like, Cameron, you monster. <laughs> keep to, no, keep that mess for you lot. <laughs> But like any anyway, let's let's leave them alone. Well, Malcolm Spellman, I will give Mal Malcolm Spellman some grace in that I think it's impossible to tell a revolutionary story through a global multinational. And this is this is the limitation of superheroes, I think. And, and like uh, we spoke way 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 ago about the rise of the antihero, and I think the rise of the antihero and the rise of the compassionate or justified villain is exactly what superheroes need. Because that okay. dichotomy of good and bad erases and reduces certain stories. You cannot do this. And in, in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they try to play with some ideas. But ultimately, they try to stick to this idea that America and its systems and the way things are is good. And wanting to change it is bad. And mm. there's no nuance there. So, you know, the girl... The girl who leads the rebel group in Winter and the Falcons, who had a fucking point. They had a fucking mm. point. And Marvel loves to flirt with an antagonist who has a point. Yeah. So yeah. Um, in Black Panther, Killmonger. Killmonger had a point. Killmonger had a motherfucking point. So did our, our good sis in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So did Namor. 
to a point. Yeah. But then they always do one thing, and then the whole film does a baby in the bathwater fallacy of going, oh, all that amazing legitimate stuff they said now doesn't matter because they murdered four Americans. And I'd be like, yes, that is unfortunate, and you should definitely hold consequences to that. But I do think some things have been brought to the table that we should think about. Yeah, it's misconstruing what radicalism is. It's reading radicalism as terrorism and it's parroting the points of truly progressive, truly yeah. thought-provoking. They're using the language of liberation politics, but then it's conflating it with terrorism and terrorist activities. I think that's what's happening is a misuse of liberation language. To I think I think it's I think it's a really really it's shit liberation media. It's really mm-hmm. really incisive and representative liberal media. Yeah. Because all of those shows are undercut by the idea that liberation should come without anybody's discomfort. And Mm. that niceness and... It's basically the idea that you should try to change things and make things better, but nobody should ever be uncomfortable or yeah. or or hurt or removed. And the realistic, the realistic, the fact of the matter is, the people who are in power and the systems that we have were specifically built to empower certain people and keep them empowered. We are not changing shit unless somebody falls off that fucking chair. Mm. There is no kumbaya path to liberalism. And I don't think black people, I don't think queer people, I don't think disabled people who have demonstrable lived experiences and histories that show that that is not a possibility have the the privilege of believing that real change can be done while everybody is comfortable because only those people who are comfortable and will be comfortable anyway will prioritize their comfort and so here malcolm spellman to me and I, i agree with you blackness is a concentrated version of great human struggle i think is wildly reductive yeah it's not it's not black people's interaction with whiteness can be indicative of a microcosm of the great human struggle but to do that mm. ties our identity our it makes our identity relational in a way that i don't like there is huge there are untold unspeakable levels of joy and passion and silliness and irreverence and confusion within blackness that is boiled down i think into this idea of like a concentrated version of the great human struggle. I don't think we're any, (sighs) tell a lie. I do think we are more representative of the great human struggle than other groups. Yeah. But I wouldn't use that as our defining feature here. But you know, obviously this is an interview. Maybe it was brief, da 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 da. But it's like you, like you said, it is reductive because at the same time, you have to question, how is he using the word blackness? I, I get a sense he's talking about black Americans. I am not black American. I'm black, but I'm not American. Uh, and so are you. You are black, but you're not American. But I think that adds, just to double back to an early conversation that we were talking about when we were talking about perspectives, hmm. that complicates things because a perspective you could bring into it, for example, is that of... Well, a lot of these stories, a lot of the critiques of these stories often relate the representation of these black symbols, let's say, to the history of black people in the United States. That is not the history of my ancestry. So I bring a very different understanding of what a black struggle, my my specific black struggle is as an immigrant, as a person who dealt with anti-blackness, anti-blackness in a different context. Yes. Do I think it's reductive? Do I I think it's reductive for us? Yes. But Malcolm Mm -hmm. Spellman as a black American, maybe that's not reductive for him. And I think that, yeah. again, this, this takes me back to the fractured mirror thing. 
I am black mm. British. Black British does not have the same cultural weight as black American. Black American, mm. I think, is a fully developed, realized aspect or facet or subculture of blackness. Whereas black British doesn't have the same weight. In fact, a lot of the black Britons that I know, we are cl more culturally close to our countries or continents of origin Mm. than we are i think black americanness is so ingrained and specifically because a lot of people are divorced from their heritages in a way that they can't go oh you are you know i'm Igbo, yeah. or oh yeah i'm this mm -hmm. i'm that so they don't have the same cultural availability they have mm. created a culture within themselves so for malcolm spellman talking about blackness as maybe he can and bear in mind this is all very circumstantial we don't know malcolm personally but right. um talking about blackness in this way might be representative for him because the black American experience is more of a microcosm of the great human struggle. Whereas me who grew up with Jamaican grandparents with Bayesian grandparents, and I've got food and culture and last and this and that and crop over mm. here and festival here, da, 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 da. That isn't to me necessarily. So as much as we're calling it reductive, I think that is reductive for us through that black yep. broken mirror paradigm. But mm. then, also, uh, you were talking about uh, power, and yeah. I think that um, there's always been limitations on superpowers, superpowered people. Because I was thinking, who's truly free? You were talking about freedom mm. and a agency, and I was like, what superhero has true agency? And I couldn't think of one. Superman is one of the most empowered, but has chained himself to a very, very specific ideology that rules what he does and does not do. Batman yeah. is limited by and constrained and contained by his trauma and his background. Wonder, Wonder Woman, ethics, this, that. There's always something that stops them. And I made a tweet the other day that I think is really pertinent here, where in the white imagination, power is corruption. Because liking the power too much is how you get to Nazism. Liking the fact that you are on top of the pyramid means that you subjugate and oppress others. And I think that has never been an idea of what power is from other groups. Yeah. So yeah. I think we've got, we've got a vision of empowered fantasy people from mm -hmm. empowered real people. And they are trying to import the sort of ethics of having privilege of going, you know, you need a moral code. You cannot wield your power brutally against other people and i think there's that's a general message that applies to everybody because all of us are privileged in some aspect but i do think that if you took yeah i do think that if you take that paradigm to other people and other experiences and you go what does real free power mean to you you'd get way more answers than subjugation hmm. and you'd get way more responses than repudiation or transformation yes like what if if superman was disabled and trans what would you do to the world how would you change the world yeah yeah oh god oh i want that now someone write that please yeah. <laughs> i love that okay welcome back to citation so this is usually where I'd be responding to your comments or answering your questions, but this is episode one, so the inbox is empty. 
feel free to send in a letter or a voice clip to Kaladen with three N's at gmail.com. That is K-H-A-L-I-D-E-N-N-N at gmail.com. You can find Ash at Van the First and his podcast at X of Words on all the socials. You can find me at Also Perp. All of that will also be in the show notes, so just scroll down. The goal is to do these monthly for a 10-episode season. Episode 2 is in the shop. In the meantime, there is another full episode in your feed for you to check out. It's actually the first episode I recorded when I had the idea to do this. Uh, We're calling it The Lost Pilot. Let me know what you think. Oh, and please leave a good rating and review. Positive encouragement is encouraged. Okay. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.